Our reading tonight is from John chapter 18, starting at verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. I'm sure, like me, you've been uh, watching the Suez Canal recently and uh, <clears throat> wondering how on earth a huge ship like the Ever Given would, why on earth they would try and get down there and uh, how on earth they were going to get the thing uh, unstuck so it could continue its journey. <clears throat> Well, the Ever, the Ever Given um, is not the world's largest ship ever. That particular um, distinction uh, belongs to a ship which actually was scrapped in 2010. It was launched in 1979 as a Seawise giant. Uh, and then it went through various different names. And then it ended life as the Mont, M-O-N-T, in 2010. And then it was scrapped. Um, the, uh, uh, the Ever Given was about 400 meters long, wasn't it? Still is. Uh, uh, the Seawise um, uh, Giant, or the, the Mont, was 458 meters long. It had 25 meters under the water. Uh, it was too big to go through the English Channel. And uh, its turning circle was two miles. It took five and a half miles to stop. It couldn't really go backwards. And uh, it was just vast and completely impractical, frankly, uh, an oil tanker. Well, in John chapter 18 this evening and uh, uh, verses 1 to 14 here, there is that feeling of just huge momentum as you get with these absolutely vast ships. And there is in progress here a, a chain of events that will not be stopped. So let's go to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And let's pray together now. Father, on this Monday, Thursday evening, I'm looking forward to tomorrow and then uh, on to Easter Sunday, we are 
uh, very aware that we're uh, we're in a very precious weekend ahead of us, just starting tonight. And we pray, Lord, that you would touch our hearts and our minds and our whole lives and that you would now speak to us through your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this Easter, we're going through John's Gospel. And John's Gospel doesn't actually have an account of the Last Supper, which is what we're remembering tonight with our communion just a little bit later on. Um, uh, But we are going to go through here in John chapter 18 and focus on Jesus' arrest. And there are three main things I'd like to point out here. And the first of them is Jesus' control over the situation. Jesus' control. So in in verse 1, when he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. It was the end of the day. They're going back to where they're staying. And, uh, and, and Judas here, he thinks that he's in control, isn't he? He's, he's been to the chief priests. He's agreed to a betray Jesus. And in, in verse 3 there, Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. He thinks he's in control as he is going to betray Jesus. But then you've got the soldiers who think that they're in control. Uh, Do you notice the word there in verse 3? A detachment of soldiers. And um, later on in verse 12, the detachment of soldiers. Uh, A detachment is normally applied to a thousand soldiers, of whom apparently 240 of them could be on, on horseback. Now, we're not told how many there were, and there probably weren't quite that many. It'd been pretty crowded if if there's a thousand soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. Um, There were a good number of them, and they were armed, and they had an authority to arrest Jesus, and they would doubtless think that they were in control of what was going on in the garden on that dark night. Um, then at the end of verse 3, near the end of verse 3, uh, some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they came along as well. And they probably thought that they were in control. They've got the betrayer, Judas. Uh, they have the soldiers to do their dirty work for them. They're now going to get rid of Jesus. They just need to manipulate Pilate and it'll all be sorted out. And they can get rid of this wretched nuisance. Then a little bit later on, look at verse 10, and we see that Simon Peter now thinks that he's in control. Simon Peter had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. But actually, none of them were in control. They wanted to be, and they thought they were, but actually the one person who was in control here is actually Jesus himself. And that's extraordinary, clearly in control and even of his own arrest. Extraordinary. You look at verses 4 to 8 there and you see Jesus in total control, not just of the situation, but of all the people who were there. An extraordinary thing, really, isn't it? That Jesus is in control here, even of his own betrayal, his own arrest, his own, as we'll see uh, tomorrow, his own trial and his own execution. 
we are not dealing with just any ordinary person, any ordinary criminal, or any ordinary crucifixion. And yes, it is possible to say an ordinary crucifixion because there were many in those days. Jesus is in control here of what is going on. That is the first thing I want to point out. The second thing is this. Jesus' divinity. Jesus' divinity. Now, there are many people who uh, are able to control things, say, uh, through their position and the authority that's granted to them, or maybe through the force of their personality. Someone like Hitler would have benefited from both of those, for instance, wouldn't he? But Jesus' control here is not because of a force of personality or a, a huge authority that's been granted to him by human beings. No, he is in control because of who he was and who he is because of his very nature. Now look at verse 5. Well, look at verse 4 as we'll uh, start this. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. Jesus said, I am he. And then again in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then on to verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And of course, we know from Exodus uh, chapter 3 uh, and uh, the I am sayings are really very significant. And John records it and uh, Jesus words twice here and makes his own comment there as well. So three times, I am completeness. We're serious about this. We really mean this. Jesus was meaning to say, and it's desperately significant when he said, I am. He's saying, that's God's name. And I am taking it on my own lips. And they knew what he was meaning, didn't they? They, they drew back and fell to the ground at the end of verse 6. They're recognizing that claim to be God. There are other times in the Bible where Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. This I am phrase comes uh, quite a lot of times, especially in John's gospel. Chapter 6, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Chapter 8 and verse 58, before Abraham was, I am John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when Jesus was interrogated before his crucifixion, a number of times there, he either claims or accepts what other people say. That he is God in the flesh, about to lay down his life for the human race. And this is really important, it's really significant. Because it's, it's saying that Jesus is not just a human being, of course. And the Christian claimed that God became a man. Here he was. On this earth, he walked 
and he talked and outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago he was nailed to a cross and died for us and that he went to his death deliberately so we're seeing here and I hope we're understanding that God with purpose deliberately gave his own life for you and for me the deliberate purposeful death of God suicide why did he do that well we've seen Jesus control we've seen his divinity and the third thing I want to say this evening which explains why he did it is Jesus sacrifice now look at verse 11 Jesus commanded Peter this is just after he's uh, sliced off Malchus's right ear put your sword away shall I not drink the cup the father has given me shall I not drink the cup the father has given me now this might look a little bit obscure but it's really significant and it's really important because it helps us to understand clearly why Jesus died the cup is hugely significant now uh, in the Bible a cup can be a cup of blessing so for instance Psalm 23 my cup overflows you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows a sign a picture of God's blessing that's not what it means here though in fact quite the reverse and in the Bible the cup more often is a sign of God's wrath of God's judgment it's a sign of a curse so in Psalm 75 and verse 8 in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices he pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs and the cup refers to the wrath of God so Isaiah 51 verse 17 the cup of his wrath the goblet that makes men stagger Isaiah 51 22 see I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger the goblet of my wrath Jeremiah 25:15 take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10 he too that is those who worship the devil will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath revelation 16 19 god remembered babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath you see the cup is the the full measure of the wrath of god over human sin and jesus as he dies for us on Good Friday, is going to drink that to its dregs. And he will drink it as he dies for you 
for me. God's wrath? Yeah. Yes. God's wrath at our sin. God's wrath at our rebellion against him. God's wrath at actually who we have become. It's God's settled hostility to all that is evil. And that includes us. And Jesus is about to drink it in our place. And to do so deliberately because he's in control. And to do so divinely because he is God. There are three um, Christian doctrines involved here which are really important. So we go a little bit technical for a, a couple of minutes. I think it's quite significant, quite important. The first one is propitiation. Propitiation. That means that Jesus satisfies God's wrath. He turns it away from us and takes it on himself. And it's really important to understand that, that our sin deserves God's wrath, but that Jesus takes God's wrath and propitiates us or propitiates God on our behalf. And then the second one is uh, uh, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus, our substitute, as he dies for us, and the result is that we are atoned for. Our sin is dealt with as Jesus is punished in our place. He is our substitute that we may be made one with God, at one with God, brought back together with God. Because Jesus took our place and was separated from God instead of us. And then the third doctrine is penal substitution. Penal punishment. There is a punishment for sin. Uh, so a penal colony, for instance, would be a, a place. So Australia began as a penal colony, didn't it? As people were deported there as a punishment for wrongdoings. And uh, it's much nicer now. And, uh, uh, but it wasn't very nice then. And penal substitution would be Someone else going in your place. Penal substitution is Jesus dying in your place. Taking your punishment. The sin is ours. And our punishment is taken by Jesus on himself as he dies for us on the cross. So when Jesus talks about the cup back in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's talking about propitiation. He's talking about substitutionary atonement. And he's talking about penal substitution. Well, those are some of the more important things he's talking about. That's Jesus heading for on the night of his arrest. And he goes there as a man in whom we can see these three wonderful things. First, we can see he's in complete control of his arrest and of everything which surrounds that and then follows on after it. We can see his divinity 
that this was not just a man going to his death, but God, the wronged one, taking on himself the punishment that the ones who have wronged him deserve. And Jesus, a sacrifice, dying for you and dying for me, that we may be forgiven and live with him for all eternity. Tonight's a wonderful evening, and tomorrow's an even more wonderful day, and Sunday will be a day of enormous rejoicing.